0: Welcome to Meditations with Zohar. I'm here with Eric Kaplan, who is a comedian and executive producer of many shows on Hollywood, including Futurama and Malcolm in the Middle, Big Bang Theory. Uh, he is also the host of a new podcast, a philosophy podcast with uh, Taylor Carmen, called Terrifying Questions. And I am excited to talk to him today.
1: Welcome, Eric. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here too, Zohar. You studied, I
0: believe, with Hubert Dreyfus, um, one of the sort of leading thinkers about AI in the 1960s and 70s, and now it's become quite a, a trendy topic. I'm curious what that experience of learning with Dreyfus was like and how that um, particular topic, studying studying it before AI has become so trendy, um, has sort of informed your take on the latest um, zeitgeist
1: well yeah there's an interesting question about what these large language models are going to be capable of doing bert dreyfus's analysis of what ai is capable of doing was based on his reading of uh, heidegger and merleau ponty uh and he concluded from that that intelligence required um, embodied coping skills uh which meant you needed to have a body and things needed to matter to you and you did not need knowledge of rules or um an ability to manipulate context-free elements so bert correctly called that um what's so-called good old-fashioned ai uh, which attempted to derive intelligence by coming up with the rules and the context-free elements that, uh, we use in mastering a domain was going to fail. Um, but the current model of AI is based on the, the connectionists or neural net, uh, approach to intelligence where there aren't context-free elements and there are no rules. It's simply, uh, a statistical analysis of how people have responded in various situations. Um, So it does much better at mimicking human competence than uh, good old-fashioned AI ever did. Uh, How well it's going to do is an open question. Um, I I would imagine as a student of Dreyfus that there are going to be limits to it because it's parasitic on the embodied competence of the people who came up with the data. Um, So, it and it doesn't have a body, and nothing matters to it. So one would guess that it's never going to be able to be anywhere near as good at humans at responding to unique, particular situations. Um, And so far, that's true. So far, what AI gives us is... um, a sort of um derivative uh general response to a situation if you ask it um you know uh, my my coworker um is bringing a dog to work and it's disturbing me it'll tell you a bunch of things it sort of sounds like a bureaucrat it'll tell you a bunch of things that reasonably competent people in that situation would do but it will not come up with a unique or good answer. Um, Of course, in our society, we train each other to act like bureaucrats or employees a lot. So to an alarming extent, the AI can do as well as a sort of person playing by rote in our society. Uh, But that's more an indictment of how bad our society is than how smart the AI is, in my opinion.
0: I've heard you talk about Star Trek from a philosophical point of view, and I believe you do not distinguish the sort of moral salience salience of, let's say, Martians or uh, life in a faraway galaxy as compared to Earthlings. Life is life. I'm wondering if embodiment is a criterion for... Uh, being within the sphere of moral concern and if it is how do you define embodiment and just to layer on one more question if we accept maimonides thesis that god doesn't have a body which was a a controversy in the middle ages um, can god still be embodied even if god is incorporeal
1: well i guess i think that i mean God doesn't have a body, but God also doesn't have a mind, strictly speaking, um, right? I mean, wouldn't wouldn't Maimonides say that when we apply a mental predicate to God, we're sort of using language loosely? Mm, that's true. Um, but I think you were
0: talking about the idea that um, with Dreyfus coming out of Heidegger, the idea that the, the salient point is care. Um, which involves self-care. And I think embodiment is one of the places where we feel a sense of threat to our existence. So maybe there is a mental aspect to that as well, but we feel it viscerally. I think the question would be like, you could have entities that care for their self-preservation or have an emotional or attitudinal view of the world. um, Even if they didn't have a body, of course, Maimonides would not allow us to say those things about God either. But
1: um, well, what okay, tell us a little bit more about this entity that cares about itself and wants to preserve itself, but doesn't have a body? What 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 are you thinking of? Well, I'm not saying I agree with this, but like, oh, but just what's the? I, I'm not saying you, we need to decide what we think about it, but I just want to understand what it is we're considering. Like what what are you imagining?
0: I mean, I think animals have bodies, but they don't their desire to, to preserve themselves would come from instinct as opposed to from, let's say, a project that they're trying to defend.
1: Oh, that's true. Um, but I thought we were talking about things that don't have bodies, but do care about themselves. Yeah. So on the flip side, maybe that would
0: be like something like a cultural meme, um, which is an abstraction, but has a certain logic of self-preservation or perhaps in a certain theological view, like God is a caring, loving being, but, um, not at risk of dying in any literal sense, um, or perhaps you have a computational model that has, this, has a strong normative view, but at the same time doesn't actually have a locus that...
1: Um, well, let's deal with them one by one. So, okay, so the idea of memes, it's sort of like this, that I write on an index card, if you want to get rich write this message on an index card. Right. And then someone sees that and they, um, they're like, oh, I do want to get rich. So they get an index card and they write, if you want to get rich, write this message on an index card. And pretty soon those index cards are all over the place. Right. That's that's sure. what we're talking about.
0: Sure. Um, like Richard Dawkins thinks that culture travels by virtue
1: of memes. So like, right. All- so that's the index card example. Um, So those index cards, I I don't think they care about being around. Do you think they care about being around? Um, In the story you told, no, I don't. I don't think so. So I don't think complexes of memes care about being around. I mean, they have certain causal properties that in interaction with beings that care will cause them to be around more. But I don't think they themselves care. What do you think of that answer?
0: I, I think that if we analogize memes to index cards, which seems plausible on, on first cut, then I would agree with the conclusion.
1: Okay. So, um, so I don't think that's an example of something that um, has no
0: body. What were we talking what about? about? What about like being or the absolute in sort of Hegel's metaphysical system? So just this idea of like a, a kind of entity that, inheres in the world, but is not of the world. And it might have a vested interest in, let's say, the progress that history takes. Um, but then, so it does, right? You can sort of personify history and think that history wants certain outcomes. But
1: so I, so let's imagine um, it's that's something like. Well, let's stick to the Earth for the time being, and not the universe. I think we could probably run this argument if we think about the universe too. But let's just think about the Earth. So there's a bunch of beings on earth, a bunch of people basically, and they are gradually starting to do philosophy and become aware of themselves as self-conscious beings doing philosophy. So that's my understanding of Hegel's view of um, Geist. Is that right? just repeat that
0: in a sentence as sort of people right. who become so self-aware Geist of themselves. Is,
1: Geist is the community of self-conscious philosophers in a historically, in a, in history.
0: Mm. Um, I don't think of it that way, but I don't well, disagree. Why do you think of
1: it? Cause I don't want to put words in your mouth. I was um, just going to say like, if there's a bunch of, um, I think, I, I think Geist, Geist is the, Geist is the,
0: p- Geist is the principle of perception,
1: which it's follows the principle of perception. So, you think the per- principle of perception wants things? Um, I th- I do. I mean, in
0: oh. in Hegel's is, view, I what think it's you want?
1: to be free of contradiction. <laughs> okay, so it's the principle of perception that wants to be free of contradiction, and. It's sort of like a diluted mystical view,
0: like like God as God was conceived of as being a being that wanted things, and then sort of by way of Christian Kabbalah, Hegel took this idea of a being and diffused it into like the Godhead, and so instead of it being one being that wanted things, it was like the system itself that wants something, and what it wants is to know itself.
1: Okay, so it's a it's it's everything, and it wants to know itself. Um, but um can it know itself without a body? does it need does it need human bodies to do that or not? I think it does, yeah, I think it needs okay. human bodies then, then it then it's got a body. I mean it's got the right some totality of human of the bodies of, of people I think I, 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 think,
0: I think I think I think it needs, the master-slave dialectic; it needs the life or, or death struggle, but that that um, that struggle happens to take place between, let's say, people engaged in uh, physical uh-huh. fighting,
1: might be okay. contingent. Oh well, I mean, if if this this uh, I don't know what to call it. Let's call it a thing, for lack of a better word. So the absolute, <laughs> okay, right? So if this absolute. Doesn't need a body, and it could just as well be an absolute with no embodiment and achieve its ends. Then that would be a counterexample uh, to Dreyfus and Heidegger. Um, but uh, and I'm not enough of a Hegel, a wallah, to say if that's true or not. Like, does it need to embody itself in history? Or could it just have well done it in, in in Plato's heaven, so to speak? I think I think it does need history.
0: Um, okay, that just it has the a question. Of... Of, yeah, I think the question is just like it, history is the
1: principle of change and movement. Um, okay, so it need it needs to actually. I guess here's the way of looking at it. Could it fail? Um, now, I guess that that brings. I think in Hegel, I think in mm-hmm. Hegel, it, it can't fail. It can just be delay, delayed because he, he says
0: it says that the you know, we 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 must tarry with the negative, um, okay. which maybe just means that there are moments in which it's incomplete, but there is going to be a resolution at some right. point. And he thought okay. it happened in 1806. <laughs> of course, right. his commentators keep pushing the
1: deadline. Right. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it hasn't happened yet. Um, well, it 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 sounds to me like. And this may be the answer that we're going to have with God um, that um, the, the Ein Sof doesn't have a body and doesn't need a body, but it doesn't think in any real sense because um, uh, no predicates are true of it because it's so unlimited. But Hakodesh Baruchu. Does have a body. The Shechina has a body, and that's um, the community of Israel. Or if you if you do Judaism in a less ethnocentric way, maybe that's a community of everyone, um, and that has a body. Um, and the way in which those are the same and different is a tough question. Maybe you can answer that one.
0: Yeah. No, that's exact. That's exactly kind of how I think of Hegel. Is that there's this sort of aspect that is eternal and this aspect that is historical and the two are interrelated which which differentiates it from Plato where there's just the eternal and then the sort of historical is a mere a pale reflection but doesn't actually sort of lead to any kheresh there's no insight that happens in history whereas in, in Hegel like being seeks history h- seeks history in order to find out about itself um, which I think then Heschel describes in more theistic terms as a God in search of man,
1: like right for him yeah. So, I think in search that's of right. so in that sense, um, Maimonides might be a little too Platonic if he really believes that it's true of God that he has no body. Like you could say it's true and also untrue of God that he has no body, or it's true and untrue of God that he has a body to get out the double negative. Um, But if you really wanna lean really hard on the idea that uh, he's absolutely so above and beyond creation and that end of story, um, then it sounds to me more like Plato.
0: What was your journey to writing stories um, and how do you think about your sort of professional work as relates to your philosophical training and attitude towards the world? Obviously, your shows have a lot of philosophical depth and content to them, but what is the the medium of storytelling or television writing sort of gain for philosophy? Um, How fundamental is it for you?
1: Uh, For me, it's quite fundamental uh, and it's sort of related to uh, what we were just talking about because I think theoretical insight is a certain flattening of our experience that when you try and take human life and express it in a series of theoretical propositions, you lose something and telling a story include some of the things that you lose um that's a pretty abstract formulation i know but uh like i'm an i'm a person and i care about things and i uh, i care about things that i don't quite understand and i still care about them and my life unfolds in time and uh, I don't quite know where it's going, but I'm still throwing forward myself and, and their communities that I care about and friends and people I love and and I'm, I'm intertwined in that social context as well. And some of those aspects of my life I can better express in a story than I can in a series of um, philosophical um, um statements. Um, uh, now sometimes I can try to have my cake and eat it too, and I can write a piece of philosophical prose that has aspects of a story um, and, and 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 that's I enjoyed trying to do that. Um, but it's it kind of going against the grain of um, philosophy as as I was taught it at least, which had more of an emphasis on, uh, you know, a series of clear theses and arguments explaining why you must accept them. Um, uh, so telling a story is not very much like that. Um, and, and another thing that I like to do is if I'm telling a story where the people, one of the things people are doing is is thinking or trying to understand the world or themselves or the situation they're in, then that can... Um, Their behavior can deny that or or contradict that in interesting ways. And their feeling can deny that or contradict that in interesting ways. Um, You can have someone who believes it's... You can tell a story about someone who believes it's true um, that uh, once people die, there's nothing left of them. And then he finds that he's doing a dissection on, the, on an eyeball, and it's the eyeball of someone who he loves. And then that would be an interesting story, because the situation that he's in may be pushing him in a direction opposite than his explicit philosophy. Uh, so that's a way that story can kind of get the jujitsu upper hand on, on philosophy. Um, i don't think it ever wins that wrestling match but i do think plato was right i do think it is a bit of a wrestling match that that our our temptation to say explicitly what we believe is true and our temptation to tell a story that reflects the story we feel ourselves to be a part of those two temptations are intention
0: hmm. what is the philosophical value or the human value, if any, of hypocrisy—it's
1: the homage vice plays to pays to virtue,
0: right? That's the saying. But like in the case of the 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 philosopher whose sort of actions don't reflect on the surface, his philosophy is does that does that suggest the the virtue is? Is non-philosophy the homage that philosophy pays to non-philosophy, or vice versa?
1: Well, well, oh, well. I mean, look. First of all, every case in which someone's actions and words don't line up doesn't need to be a case of hypocrisy, does it? I thought hypocrisy has to do with, on some level, you kind of know you don't think it's true, but you're you're trying to re- reap the social rewards. Of saying it's true, even though you don't think it's true. That's how I cash out hypocrisy. But maybe we have slightly different. Definitions.
0: Maybe maybe I'm using it broadly. Like if I think about, um,
1: let's Rousseau. come up with an example. It always helps to come up with an example for me.
0: I, I guess where I'm going with this is if you look at the lives of many philosophers, they <laughs> there's a lot to criticize. Of course, you know, physician oh, kill thyself. Well, there,
1: there's, I mean, if you're talking about, I mean, let's take an example. Um, Take let's Rousseau. Say, Rousseau uh, gave up all five of his children. Okay, so put them yeah, in the hosp- founding a in a hospital. Yeah, and you say we should be, we should care for our children, but then when you have a child, you abandon him. Um, well, that's not great. It would be better if you didn't do it. Um, uh, now, maybe it's a tragic choice. Maybe by abandoning those children, you're able to write your book and your book will do so much more good in the world that it's okay that you did it i mean it's not great you know you kind of wish you didn't have that kid if you're going to abandon him but let's say uh you would have you will ultimately do more good in the world by abandoning your kid uh and writing the book than taking care of the kid and never writing the book i mean i guess that's okay i mean it's a sad situation i'm sorry that that happened what do you think?
0: Um, I mean, I, I, I don't think that Rousseau justified his choice that way. I, I don't know how he justified it. But
1: yeah, Well, maybe he didn't justify his choice. Maybe, I mean, often people do things just because they're weak, right? Yeah. And they don't like, have a justification. Maybe he was just a personally weak man who wrote some good books.
0: Yeah, exactly. I still I mean, like I mean, that
1: better than a personally weak man who didn't write any good books.
0: He says... Um, that we should sort of listen to our conscience when making moral choices and that raised the question of whether he was
1: listening to his conscience maybe um, he wasn't maybe he was a jerk so maybe he was someone who didn't listen to his conscience but wrote some books if a person good.
0: writes some books that are compelling but lives an uncompelling life like they're weak or they're a jerk or whatever it is um i consider that to be a kind of hypocrisy Is not, okay. not by
1: you. So then maybe that person's a hypocrite. But they wrote a good book. What like? What other questions do we have? Like, is the question: Can hypocrites write good books? I mean, I think they can.
0: I think the question is: Should we reconsider the value of their ideas in light of their, uh, in light of the author's own personality? Like, and and should we? If, if it turns out that a certain percentage of philosophers who've written compelling books are not compelling people. Um, should that lessen the esteem that we assign to those books as a as a class?
1: Oh n- no! I think we should just try out the ideas and see if they work in real life. Uh, I don't care where they come from um, at all, personally. Um, do you? It goes back to your eyeball
0: point because, like, if I didn't know anything about the author, I'm more likely to f- to enjoy the idea. But the moment that I find out, let's say that the author was an egomaniac, then I feel like maybe I need to read the book, uh, to reread it in light of the possibility that I'm being manipulated. And,
1: um, and, and how do you do 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 that? Like, let's say there's, (laughs) let's say there's two, um, there's, I mean, let's say, um, I've got a rash, right. And and i go to two dermatologists and one of them says um you should put on this hydrocortisone cream let's call that dermatologist dan um and then another one says you should stop eating dairy let's say that's dermatologist larry and then and then someone says to me you know what dermatologist dan He's got a really bad rash. He, he he And he doesn't use that cream. I think he's probably just a a, a scam artist trying to sell that cream. Um, it's certainly a possibility, right? And that's my analogy to the person who's telling you a bunch of nice things in a book. But he himself, his life is a shambles. He's a moral midget. I shouldn't use the word midget. He's, he's a moral creep. And, um, yeah, and he doesn't even believe it. Um, now if you're saying, should that give me pause before running out and following his, um, advice? Well, yeah, I think it should give me pause, but I don't think it's dispositive because it's entirely possible in that case that when I put on that cream, my rash goes away. And then I'm like, huh, that's interesting. For whatever f- reason, dermatologist Dan, I don't know why he didn't use a rash. It didn't work for him. He's hes a weirdo <laughs> in some way. Uh, but it's not... its not it, I i would say it should give one pause, but I don't think it answers the question. Because for whatever reason, the truth may have come down to our troubled planet. Like, like Leonard Cohen says, it, it, it's where the cracks are that the light gets through. Maybe the cracks in rousseau's poor broken uh failure of a life are what let some important insights into our world i think we just don't know and um uh you know if if somebody is a perfect person and they tell you things that are perfect and whenever you do them your life is great then you have no need to seek elsewhere you're good so if you've got that then what? isn't into hate i mean like it's great if you've got a series of a, a advice or philosophies written by perfect people and when you apply them to your life, everything goes swimmingly, then you're in good shape and you don't need to read Rousseau.
0: Mm. I appreciate that reflection.
1: Now people tend to say when they're in a religious tradition that the people who wrote it are perfect but um, very often that's hype or or at least it's I, I can I'm concerned that it's hype because how do we know? <laughs> How do we know that they were perfect?
0: Well, I by mean, virtue of being human,
1: people what?
0: By virtue of being human, they can't be.
1: Okay, so then, so then, um, they, everyone, could be clo- then they could be, they case. could be
0: closer. They could be closer to perfect. Okay. Like I think, I think, like, like maybe you grade human beings. Um, let's just say on a bell curve and you want your philosophers to be in the 90 90th percentile and above on the level of like moral and enlightened and insightful. Oh, well, yeah, and it's I troubling. It's I troubling if like they're on the in the bottom quartile but they oh, also have to be that. brilliant.
1: I don't know but <laughs> because um I mean I think you're 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 just exchanging in my example perfect for nearly perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you look, if you look at the guys in the case of the two dermatologists, like what we might say is neither of them has perfect skin. Both of they, both of them have a series of skin problems. They've got oily patches. They've got scaly patches. They've got some things that they tried to fix and never quite got better. And one of them has much better skin than the other, and he advises don't eat eggs. And the one who's got considerably worse skin than the other says take this hydrocortisone cream. Do you think it follows that I ought to take the eggs, uh, the egg diet and eschew the hydrocortisone cream?
0: No, I don't think it follows. It doesn't. Like, and why not? The advice that a person gives is, doesn't necessarily, and the efficacy of that advice doesn't correlate to. Right. The efficacy
1: of advice doesn't correlate with the health of the person giving the advice. And, And we could even imagine situations where they are counter correlated. There's a reverse correlation because the guy with the really bad skin has spent more time investigating cures to skin diseases and cares about it more. Um, I guess the question is is philosophy and what we expect
0: from it analogous to a person seeking to get rid of a rash like that's an interesting nimshaw so to, so to say um
1: I think it is but do you think it isn't
0: Um, I think we go to philosophy for some kind of self-help. So in a broad sense, there is an analogy, but then a rash is an identifiable thing where you know when it is there or, or went away, whereas I'm not sure that we have the same level of scrutiny or accountability or definition of the problem set when we're going to philosophy to solve a problem. Like, The problem is like, I want to be more enlightened or <laughs> I want to be like a good person or I want to be fulfilled or something that maybe is too global. Um, huh. Well, If it's tactical, think, like think- I have a problem and I need to know how philosophy tells me, like, should I hire this person or should I fire this person? Maybe in that sense, it's analogous to the rash um, and the philosopher is, let's say the soul doctor. But I think like most of the time when a person's reading philosophy or going to a philosophy class or something like that, it's not really to solve an identifiable problem. It's like to become a more philosophical person in the hopes that that leads to a better life. And it's, so it's just this much harder sort of.
1: Well, so why isn't trying to have a better life analogous to trying to have better health? What's the disanalogy there? Better health. saying, I'm not, I don't claim myself to have poked a hole in your thing. I think what you just said is very interesting, but I'd like to, to get a clearer view of
0: it. maybe maybe better health and better life are analogous, but better health is like a very broad thing that is multimodal and cross-functional.
1: Okay, Whereas, so then we, then let's not get fixated on the idea of a rash. Let's just say I don't feel very well. I feel I could feel better, and I go to two people, and one of them uh, says, um, "What you should do is." exercise more and then the other one says what you should do is is um i don't know uh socialize more so and somebody says you know that guy who says to socialize more he's actually a pretty unhappy guy well the guy who says to exercise more he's a pretty happy guy Um, I think it's sort of the same as the rash case, like that doesn't tell me that I, or even most people won't be happier if we socialize more and exercise the same, just because the advice is coming from someone who himself is pretty miserable. You know, he could be miserable for a lot of reasons that don't have to do with his recipe for feeling better. Um, he could be very unlucky. Um, he could not follow his own advice. Um, yeah. okay. I, I grant you that logically, although I do think
0: experientially, and this isn't because I'm philosophically rigorous, this is just cause I'm a fallible human being. I probably would follow the, the exercise, happy man, um, rather than the person, not, not than the person who's sort of unhappy, even if, what they're saying is perfectly cogent.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's reasonable. I don't think that's wrong. Like you're, you are are sort of um, emulating somebody who seems like they've got it going on and rather than someone who seems like they don't have it going on. And, and I think that's a pretty rational way to proceed, you know, like we, we do it in many life skills. Like if someone says, I'm going to teach you how to make mad bucks on the internet. And you're like, well, you yourself are impoverished and in debt. If you really knew how to make mad bucks on the internet, you'd do it. So I'm not listening to you. That's a reasonable course of action. Here's a question.
0: Like, How do you know when to listen to advice? And why read a particular book a priori? Like, what do you need to do in order to justify spending time on that book or that thinker and saying, "Yes, I want to open my mind and my heart to this person."
1: I I can tell you personally. I I guess I don't I don't think my mind and heart are closed and that I have a locked door and then people come knocking and say, "We'd like to come in and suggest an idea," and then I look at the papers and I open the door. Um. I think I'm always engaged in a lot of things that I care about and I have a lot of problems and many, many possible ideas are always sort of swirling in and out of my life. And sometimes when they swirl in, I'll be like, huh, that seems like that might be right. I'll investigate that a little bit more. So so I'm never in the situation, like you could say, an alien craft arrives on Earth and says, we have a new philosophy, would you like to know it? All you need to do is have us fire a a ray into your brains and you'll know the alien philosophy. And I think in that situation, I'd be like, let's not do that, guys. We don't know these aliens. We don't know if what they count as philosophy is what we would call being enslaved, like being some of the Borg. Let's tell them to take a hike. Um, I, I think that's a reasonable thing to do. But like if someone says, hey, do you want to read this book by Heidegger? He was a Nazi, but he has some good ideas. I don't think I'm in the state of the person faced with the alien spacecraft. I'm like, well, what are the ideas? And do they remind me of anything I've heard of before? And do they answer any questions that I'm puzzled about anyway? Um, if they do, I'll read it. And if it sounds like they don't and, you know, your right, time is limited, um, I won't. Mm. Okay.
0: Speaking of Heidegger, he says that every great thinker thinks one great thought and one great thought only. Uh, He also has a line um, in the beginning of the Zolokan seminars. I think it's more or less just a transcription of a snippet from Plato's dialogue with the sophist where I I think Socrates says to the sophist, you're always saying this... um, you're different things about different things. Um, but I, as a philosopher, I'm saying the same thing about the same thing to, to say different things about different things is easy, but to say the same thing about the same thing is the most difficult. So I'm wondering if you agree, um, that every great thinker thinks one thought only and, um, Separately, do you have one great thought or one thought that you think is the sort of obsession that animates your work as both a philosopher and a writer?
1: Okay, I'm not going to claim the mantle of being a great thinker, so let me take this out of the autobiographical. Um, I think what Heidegger means by that is a certain claim of holism, which is to say... What makes a great thinker a great thinker is that such a person looks at things in such an interconnected way that everything hangs together and it's all a little bit different from other great thinkers. Um, So it's, it's not a, I mean, it's not really a propositional one thing. Heidegger says things like Plato says, being is idea. Okay, well, being is idea, what does that mean? That's a way of of sort of condensing a whole bunch of very micro, non-propositional ways in which Plato thinks, thinks it all hangs together. Um, And by the way, uh, my my refusal to um, apply it to my own case is kind of consistent with Heidegger because he also doesn't think that the person who's doing it is able to condense their own thought themselves. Um, It's not the kind of thing that you can know yourself. And and it kind of makes like the fish in the water. If everything that you think hangs together in a unique way that... um, is is sort of implicit it's a little bit like what we're saying about the large language model or or uh, the vibe of something if there's a general vibe to um how i look at the world i'm not in the position to articulate that according to heidegger and i think that's a pretty reasonable position because it it would just seem right to me <laughs> to me um but but I wouldn't I wouldn't get too hung up on the idea of there's one thought I think that's that boils down to the holism claim, um, and, and and you know regarding the sophist um, it, the the concept of same and difference go in for a lot of examination in that dialogue. Um, so to say that two thoughts are the same or that they're different is is kind of hard. I, I think the the I don't remember who is the who's the um, sort of main character author insert in the Sophist, but but whoever it is, they say something like judgments and sameness of sameness and difference are like uh, two. They're like the warp and woof of the fabric of our cognitive lives. So because if you think about it, you know, any two things are the same and they're different because if they weren't different, they wouldn't be two things. But uh, they need to be the same in some way or we couldn't compare them. So we're always making judgments uh, that employ both sameness and difference. Um, so I think the idea that, um, um, certain groups of people think the same and certain groups of people think different is a little bit of a trick on Plato's part. I, I don't think that it's as simple as, as that. It couldn't be.
0: What about the idea that difference is a, is related to novelty and sameness to patience. So, uh, the person who's seeking to say different things about different things is a kind of, free-floating dilettante but the person who says the same thing about the same thing, although annoying maybe to the people who want to move on to the next topic is the the hero because they're sort of have a more contemplative meditative approach.
1: To- well I don't think that's right because I think look at the number two and the number three um, the most contemplative person in the world, is going to have to acknowledge that three is odd and two is even, and they also will have to acknowledge that they're both numbers. So they're both the same and different. And you don't need to seek novelty to say that. In fact, if you don't if you don't recognize that, you're kind of not very good at arithmetic, and you don't understand two and three very well at all. So, so I don't think people who acknowledge that things that are different are different are are party people. <laughs> who can't who can't be satisfied with contemplation and have to go on to the next new thing do you what about
0: but what about this holism point that you are making and so this idea that there are people who do have a system even if they can't articulate it and that that is the goal is to have a worldview in which it all hangs together versus those who kind of flow from topic to topic having so to say takes or opinions that Socrates criticizes doxa, maybe there's a correspondence between sort of having a lot of takes and versus being patient and making sure that what you have hangs together.
1: Well, I think to be patient and be sure that what you have hangs together is a good thing. Um, and Plato thinks that and like, why, how could it not be a good thing? It seems clearly clearly to be a good thing. Is, is there? Are there people arguing the opposite, that it's a bad thing?
0: i think there are people who don't think that it's fundamental like i don't think anyone thinks it's bad but i don't i think for heidegger for hegel for a lot of german idealists like if you have a system then you've done philosophy and if you haven't completed the system then you're not a philosopher right Um, whereas others might
1: well who are these others i want to get a sense of what this other position is maybe it would be empiricists
0: Maybe it would be empiricists, uh, human. Oh. maybe it would be like your contemporary scientists who kind of move, like have no metaphysical oh, possession I think
1: scientists like, want things to hang together very much, well,
0: maybe within the physical universe, but they don't necessarily need to have a take on ontology
1: right, well, but that's like if you're totally consistent, that's a consistent position too I mean, like. Well, let's make a distinction here,
0: or like Kierkegaard, I would say. I mean, maybe maybe he
1: slips from idea to idea because he can't make up his mind. I don't think so.
0: I think uh, if certain existentialists you might you might claim uh, reject the idea of philosophy as a system and focus much more on. Well, let's let's take an an example.
1: Um, Suppose you think. That uh, Oh, you know who says something a little like this? Um, Stephen Jay Gould. He has this idea of the dueling magisteria, or the separate magisteria. And he says, if you want to know how a physical organism came to be, you're doing science. And if you want to know how people should behave, you're doing ethics. And there is not a way to put those two things together. You just have to acknowledge that those are two different um ways of in of of investigating or ways of thinking um and, and that might be true or that might be false, but I don't think it's a sign that he's a dilettante. <laughs> I think he's just saying i I don't want to force my Ethics to be a form of science, or to force my science to be a form of ethics. I just want to acknowledge that these are two different approaches. Do you think that that brand Stephen Jay Gould is an unserious thinker?
0: No, I think that is a system in a way. It's a kind of okay. System. Well,
1: then, if that's the case, then I'm not sure who who <laughs> are who are the unsystematic people that. We're well, if we, well if
0: we go back to sophistry valuable.
1: itself i mean it is a boogeyman
0: right like if we go back to what? if we go back to sophistry itself which right is- well
1: but sophistry is a term of abuse um, as it's used nowadays it sort of means um, or, or i mean as it was used by plato as well um, they, like but but let's think about an exact an actual example um like who you who do you believe is a contemporary sophist?
0: Yeah, I'm. Well, first let's reconstruct the definition of a sophist. I think a sophist would be somebody who seeks to come off well, but not but as so. There's this kind of superficiality to oh, the endeavor. So if Their it's,
1: ideas are bad, but they're presenting them in um, a way that makes them seem good, but they're really bad ideas. So they're sort of a equivalent to like um, quack, you know, quack physicians that they they're they're making you think that they're trying to make the world a better place in order to make money. But it's just a lie. Then we should avoid them and we should uncover them. They sound bad. Um, so so I, I agree with that. Uh, that seems pretty that seems almost to follow yeah. from the premises. Yeah. 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 Kind of I, I think lying to me. I I should, you know, we should help each other out. If we learn that someone's a sophist, maybe some people might be sophists and not know it. So we should help them out by leading them to understand that. Maybe what Heidegger was talking about
0: is the difference between a philosopher and a public intellectual. Not that you can't be both, but that the kind of person who has the microphone and gives the TED talk, um... Is motivated by a desire to have impact, or to come, or to win a political battle, or something instrumental, and that is intention with just focusing on the question itself, irrespective of what it, the consequences are, or how it's received by society, or whether it enriches oneself, etc. Um, per- perhaps that's too gross of a distinction because in reality, like there, it's it's blurrier. But I think we can probably think of. Many examples of people with um, large perches who are relatively superficial as compared to sort of the hidden sadiqim, the, uh, the those philosophers who are probably much more patient but far less impactful in, in right. terms of getting their well, I, ideas out.
1: I think about um, a a drash about Aaron, and supposedly Aaron. If, if, if a couple had separated, he would say things that were not a billion percent true in order to get them to get back together. So he would say whatever to the wife, the husband's really sorry. And he just, he's, he doesn't know how to say it to you. And he'd say to the husband, the wife's really sorry. She just doesn't know how to say it to you in order to achieve the result of those, that marriage getting repaired. Um, so maybe the good public intellectual, and and let's deal with the good case because the case of the person who's just a fake is less philosophically interesting. The good public intellectual might say things where their goal is, is to create an immediately more peaceful society or a more just society And that goal is overshadowing their commitment to saying what's exactly true. Um, And I imagine that could be true of Aaron. Like somebody could say to him, perhaps Moses, why did you lie? Uh, (laughs) He didn't really say he wanted to get back together with her. She didn't really say she wanted to get back together with him. Um, But Aaron, I think, has a point. Well, it's not exactly a lie. It's just it'll ultimately cause the two of them to get back together, and that's worthwhile. Um, so I think the public intellectual might be a bit like that, in the good case. I mean, in the bad case, we, we don't need to waste our time talking about that. such a person, they're just a trickster or something.
0: Yeah. So the, the I like this idea of the, the sort of best-case scenario for the sophist is that he's a rodev shalom, a pursuer of peace.
1: Yeah, or a pursuer of some other worthwhile goal right? Maybe he's a pursuer of uh, winning in this war, you know, and a lot of people, like, it's, let's say it's a just war, you know, and people are like, well, isn't it technically true that we've got a 65% chance of losing the war? And then the public intellectual says, this is not the time to question. This is the time for each of us to courageously battle. Like I could imagine a situation where you want that rather than the person who's saying, "Well, objectively, I think we're kind of beat." Um, and, and honestly, I think I think it's hard to pick. Like we probably need both people who like all they care about is the truth, um, and people who think about other social goals in their um, communicative practice. But what do you think? I don't know. This is a hard question.
0: What do I you, think you about? Think-
1: Like, you seem to be sort of um, concerned that there might be, um, like, bad actors out there. Like, you seem to be concerned that there might be people who are superficial or hypocrites. Like, you've returned to that topic from different angles. And I'm just sort of wondering, like, um, like, what is your opinion on this topic? I think that in my youth, I
0: esteemed philosophers a lot more and that is um less because uh, to go back to your skin rash analogy like maybe i assumed they had better skin than they really had and you're saying that i shouldn't worry myself with what their skin is like um, either it works or it doesn't work but i do think that maybe my expectations for what philosophers could achieve in their personal lives or what I could achieve from philosophy would be greater than what it has. And so there's a certain disappointment or I have to re- recalibrate. So
1: you're disappointed. My,
0: I think so. Um,
1: and what is it, what is it
0: you tried to achieve that you failed <laughs> to achieve? Uh, to become enlightened uh, holistically. Um, you wanted to, to be enlightened. I think so.
1: Okay. Um, and what does that mean to you? What, what does to be enlightened mean?
0: Yeah. Um, well, I think at the minimum, it means to live a perfect life, like to think about things in the best possible way to have sort of perfect um, emotional self-regulation because you see the truth and are not distracted by your sort of, uh, the things that flare up for you in, in a given situation. So what um, you're
1: seeking is emotional self-control?
0: I don't think that's the whole of it. Um,
1: that's I, think, a necessary condition? I,
0: I, I think that there's like an instinctual aspect of being human and a more um, cultivated aspect. And I seek to be more cultivated and in, in line with the truth and less base, basely human okay. um, I so- think that's one aspect of it. I think the other is, um to have a system that would allow me to understand the moral terrain in which I operate and know what is good and what is evil, mm-hmm. um as opposed to having a much more ambiguous view of the world
1: and the complexity of sort of the moral terrain, right. But if the moral terrain is complex, wouldn't you want a view that acknowledges that? Uh, yeah, but it's still disappointing because I think,
0: like in terms of the the, you want to have a directive and a program and know how to prioritize and sort of the idea of there being moral trade offs and not knowing sort of whether you're doing you're sort of prioritizing the right things. I think that's kind of unsettling.
1: Right, but it's it's better like it's more likely to lead to you being a good person if you acknowledge the difficulty of the problem than if you imagine it's simpler than it is, yeah,
0: I agree with that
1: um, so some of the things I said are are why I'm
0: disappointed, but not the they don't exhaust it. I think there's like
1: like in other words i if you thought that life was simpler than it was and somebody taught you that it was not as simple as you mistakenly believed it was, then I think that person has done you a service. Um, and, and they've, and, and the people who interact with you <laughs> as well, um, like, because you don't want to think things are simpler than they are. Cause then you'll do things that are bad. I don't mean, I'm not, I am not mean to be pointing a finger at you. I mean, nobody, nobody should think things are simpler than they are. Cause then they'll, they'll do things that are, are bad. I mean, like,
0: I'm not saying I want to be the Buddha or anything like this, but I do think- Well, why shouldn't you? Why
1: don't you want to be the Buddha? Why don't
0: I want to be the Buddha? Um, Yeah, I mean,
1: you said, I'm not saying I want to be, but I think you should want to be. We all should want to be. um, I want to be. I guess
0: I'm more of a pluralist. Like, I think the Buddha is good for some people, but not for everyone. Like, I guess I just like, I guess I thought that philosophers were wise. Um, they love wisdom and maybe they came closer. Whereas now I don't necessarily have the view that philosophers have achieved uh, the attainment of wisdom. Maybe they just modeled yearning for it, which is fine.
1: Oh, but that's that's, what the word means, right?
0: Yeah. But you would think that after all that time and energy and effort that they got further along than those who didn't love it.
1: Oh, well, I mean, what's the contrast class? Like, are you finding people that you like to copy, and they're not philosophers? And if so, who are they, and what's their approach?
0: I don't have a contrast class, but I do think maybe a sense of balance is now what I aspire to, and I think of philosophers as a bit extremist. Oh. Um,
1: so what would you include on the other scale to keep from going in, uh, un, getting unbalanced and having too much of whatever philosophers have?
0: Uh, the opposite of like, if, if philosophers are super cerebral, then I think some sort of pastoral or emotional engagement. Um, I think if philosophers tend to only hang out with other philosophers or talk or think that philosophy is sort of the, the queen of the sciences, then some sense of humility or some populism or a, a sense that like, just being with normal people who don't think about these things is sort of meaningful and valid as a, you know, um, I think probably some element of practicality Um, like, you know, Heidegger is very, what do you call it? Um, judgmental of ratiocination. Um, in his sort of anti-Semitic writings, he he conflates ratiocination with Jewishness, like calculative thinking, is as distinct from pure thing, as as a, as opposed to just thinking and thoughtfulness. Um, like ratiocination would be like focusing on driving certain outcomes or calculative thinking, you know, like you could imagine like an investment banker doing radius to wouldn't Heidegger would say, but, but you know, science So
1: I, I, I got lost here a little bit. So you said like you agree with Heidegger that you think we need practical skills and engagement. Uh, no, and I disagree. I disagree
0: with Heidegger um, that we should aspire to thinking um, to the detriment of ratiocination, radi- I think ratiocination is good. He he's 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 con- he condemns ratiocination as, oh, as sort well, of anti. Okay, I,
1: I think I think you might have your wires crossed a little bit here and be closer to Heidegger than you think. Because if if we're going to say that ratiocination is something like um, looking at the world like uh, a hedge fund manager as simply an, a cerebral exercise, you don't like that either. You you think that ratiocination is is limited and you want to include practical engagement with the world and empathy with your fellow humans, right?
0: Yeah, from that from that point of view, I guess I guess I agree. But at the same time, within the realm of the practical, I include practical thinking, which I think Heidegger well, really Heidegger does you know, too.
1: He was just personally bad at it, but in his philosophy, he thinks practical thinking, he thinks that if you understand a topic, you know what to do with it and if you don't know what to do you don't understand it he was just terrible as a person but if you look at what his view was his view was pretty close to the one you just okay fine fine i'll 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 walk with you on that point by the way i'm going to i'm I gonna, like i'm like, I feel bad that you're disappointed in philosophy but but i think um, <laughs> what you're saying is a very philosophically defensible view and it's one that i share um, that um, mm. you shouldn't just Uh, use um ratiocination you should also use empathy and imagination and commitment um and all that good stuff
0: the source the the sources for philosophy have expanded well beyond philosophy and i i think that's a good thing um but i just find myself reading less philosophy less pure philosophy so i guess that behavior reflects a certain Uh sense of having moved on or something
1: Mm -hmm. That's cool. What are you reading these days?
0: Um, let me pull, pull up my Kindle. I've, I guess I read a lot of articles. i um, trying to think. So I read a book by Philip Tetlock recently called Super Forecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction, um, which I, I think that – That's so going back to your point on Heidegger, do you think he would call that super forecasting radiocination?
1: I've never read it. I don't know. Um, But I guess I think um, we kind of need some moment in our culture when we sit down and think, huh, there's hedge fund management, there's abstract math, there's uh, being a public intellectual There's comedy writing, and there's, uh, I don't know, poetry. And these all are appealing to us. And how should we view how to navigate the terrain where these different modes of inquiry or acting are appealing to us? And I call that philosophy, just for lack of a better name for it. Um, You don't need to call it philosophy. You could call it thought. Heidegger calls it thought. Um, Some people might call it um, science, uh, (laughs) you know, Um, but, but some or engineering. Right. Um, But I think there are these different ways that people encourage us to approach life. And then there has to be, there doesn't have to be, but it's helpful if there's some way to discuss, well, how should we approach it? Like, like, you know, take, take like a tough example, like, Like um, people diagnose themselves with mental disorders more these days than they used to when I was a kid. Um, What do we think about that? Um, Now, that's a question which is not precisely um, psychology because it's a question about how we should use psychological categories in our lives. Um, So I would call that question philosophy. Um, But I think if you're going to be any good at it, (laughs) Which is not to say I'm any good at it, but if you're going to aspire to being good at it and I aspire to be better at it, um, you kind of need to take a step back and be like, well, yeah, here's psychology and here's law. And there are two different ways of looking at people. And what do we want to do about those two different ways? And if someone says, "Um, I'm sorry, I totally flaked on you, but I always flake on people because I have flaky personality disorder. And then you're like, I, I don't think that's cool, man. You can't just use yourself for <laughs> flaking on me. Then I think at that point, you're inviting that person to do philosophy or what I would call philosophy.
0: Nice. I like that. I I, I certainly, I guess in that sense, like I'm not, I'm not disappointed with philosophy as that sort of more applied thinking in situations, but Hubert Dreyfus and Sean Kelly in their book, all things shining. I think they try to go towards building, like imagining what it would take to build a world in which we experience the poetic at scale. um, So that it isn't just the preserve of let's say philosophers or artists, but that sort of at the more cultural and macro level, we could, we could have affordances that would engender greater thoughtfulness and um one of their examples is going to a sports stadium and watching a game and feeling the sense of whoosh. Um, that has never really done it for me, but I do feel the whoosh, so to say, um, in, through a life of religious observance and a sense of being connected to others, let's say on Shabbat. Um, do, you, do you feel the whoosh at all? And is that is that something that we that philosophers should aspire to create at at scale, like something that goes beyond just you and your friends talking about philosophy to be more of a cultural or civilizational project?
1: Uh, Yes, I think that's a good thing. Um, But I guess I think it requires a certain um, amount of um, passivity as well as activity. In other words, I don't think I should approach or anybody who cares about that should approach it as sort of like, let's tear down our society and come up with a blueprint and then erect a new one. Because I think the best way to do it is to be open to where, in your word, the whoosh is and also where other people find it. Because um, I think I think we're... I think for whatever reason, people have tended lately to start to approach each other with a certain degree of, um, of mistrust. And maybe I shouldn't say lately because, you know, Heidegger was this horrible anti-Semite and this idiot, um, when it came to other people and he, he viewed people, uh, who were in a sense on the same team as he was as his enemies. I mean, I don't know his girlfriend was Jewish. He said nice things about Martin Buber, but when he was in his wearing his Nazi hat, he was quite idiotic about Jewish people. Um and I think it's really helpful to like go into the world and open your heart to other people and see what's inspiring them and kind of be open to that. And if you if you go through the world and you you are open to what is inspiring people, even if, you know, you initially, they initially freak you out. I think that can be a good path to figuring out how we all can hang together as a team or a family and feel the whoosh together. You know, like, like criminal, like take a, a really easy example, criminals, people are in prison and people are like, Oh, those people are, who are criminals, they're criminal. I don't wanna hear what they have to say, they scare me. They could steal my stuff, they could beat me up. But why did they become criminals? If you, if you open your heart to them, then you might get a sense of, of how something inspired them enough that they got themselves in trouble or, or addicts. You know, Like any group of, group of people that we think of as sort of the scum of the earth or just weird. You know, it doesn't need to be people we look down on because we think they're bad. It could be people we just don't feel any connection with. We feel disconnected from if we can rebuild those connections, because I do think people are naturally connected to all other people by virtue of being people. If we can rebuild those connections and see how they feel the whoosh, then we might discover that there's certain stuff that it is whooshing in our lives, but we've been closed off to it. Um, That's what I think.
0: Hmm.
1: What are you working on these days? Uh well I I I I I'm I'm doing a podcast called Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them with uh um Taylor Carmen um and um I'm working on that uh I um well I I'm, I'm trying to do stand up comedy um and, uh, and I'm, I'm a writer, so I'm, and we're on strike right now. So I'm not currently working on any television projects. Um, I, I might write a novel. I'm thinking of writing a novel. Um, uh, so, so stuff like that. I, I, gave, I gave a speech on um, uh, Merleau-Ponty and self-knowledge. Um, so that's like the last um, written piece of philosophy I did.
0: So on the terrifying questions, why did you choose that as your frame? And do you think philosophy is successful at unterrifying us or what do you think philosophy does
1: to this? Yeah, I think philosophy can be, I just wanted to, I just wanted to come up with a, a way of saying things that we really care about. Um, uh, and I thought that that was a good way of saying it. I wanted to bring the emotional, um, the emotional uh, connection back into philosophy so that people would care about it. Um, okay, okay, I got it, run. It was great talking to you. It was a very interesting conversation. Have a good day, Zohar. Nice to meet you. Bye-bye.
0: Okay, take care. Be well, Eric. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Adkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAdkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at ZoharAdkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.